Thanks for listening to the Best of Coast to Coast podcast. And if you want to hear more than just this highlight from the show, become a Coast Insider and you can listen to the complete program, plus recent episodes about out-of-body experiences, the scientific search for extraterrestrial life, and biblical prophecies, which may have foretold our current state of global turmoil. So head on over to coasttocoastam.com and sign up for Coast Insider to catch up on what you may have missed from coast to coast. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. We're going to talk about the runaway species, how human creativity remakes the world. Two guests for you. Let me introduce our first guest, of course, Dr. David Eagleman, a neuroscientist at the Stanford University and New York Times bestselling author, a number of books, and the director of the Center for Science and Law. He is the writer and presenter of the Emmy-nominated PBS series The Brain. And beyond his 110-plus academic publications, he has published many popular books, including Incognito and, of course, some and The Brain and the one we're talking about now, The Runaway Species, that he wrote with Anthony Brandt, who I will introduce in a second. But first of all, let's say, say hello to David Eagleman. David, welcome to the program. Thanks. Good to be here tonight. Good. Looking forward to this. And of course, Anthony Brandt is a professor at Rice University's Shepherd School of Music. He's a composer and artistic director of the award-winning contemporary music ensemble Musica, which performs both adult concerts and free educational programs that have served close to 80,000 public school students. His compositions include two chamber operas and works for orchestra, ballet, theater, film, choir, chamber ensembles, and sound and art installations as well. He has co-authored several papers on music cognition and organized three international conferences. And here is Anthony Brandt on Coast to Coast. Hello there, Anthony. Hi, George. Great to be here. Good to, good to have you both with us. I'm going to talk to both of you, and then, then feel free to jump in at any time. Uh, and you wrote this book together, The Runaway Species. Now, David, you've written a number of other books that have to do with the brain and creativity. How did you team up with Anthony on this one? Well, Tony and I have been friends for a number of years now, and one day we were having a coffee, and we started talking about creativity, which is a topic that both of us have been thinking about. And we realized that we uh, had ideas that meshed together beautifully about what was actually happening in the sciences and in the arts that was the same underlying issues, how the brain comes up with new ideas to do something. So three, three and a half years ago, we decided we'd write a book together, and this is the result. And, uh, and Anthony, and we'll call you Tony, too, tonight, to tell me well, what's it like for a composer to get involved in writing about the creativity in the brain? Oh, it's, it's really fantastic. Uh, I think uh, working with David has been just a total joy from beginning to end. And what we particularly loved is uh, building this conversation back and forth between the arts and sciences and seeing how much they have to say to each other about something that's so fundamentally human. What is so unusual, so special about the human brain, David? Um, well, essentially, it's very much like other animal brains. And if I were to show you a cell from a human brain and a cell from a horse brain and a squirrel brain and so on, you couldn't tell the difference. They look, they look exactly the same. But what happened during evolution is that the cortex, which is the wrinkly 
part on the outside of the brain, that expanded and expanded in humans. And so we have so much more cortex for our body size than any other species. And that seems to be the magic stuff. Among other things, what it led to is more room in between where we get inputs and, and where we do outputs. And so instead of acting reflexively, like most animals do, instead we have more room to sort of ponder things and chew on options and maybe react and maybe not. And also, as part of the expansion of the cortex, we got this really huge prefrontal cortex, which is the area just behind your forehead. And that is the part of the brain that allows us to simulate what ifs, to unhook ourselves from space and time and think about possible futures. And that's something that we appear to be much better at than any other animal species. And so with these, with these two things in place, we're able to generate an ongoing stream of novel worlds of saying, well, what if this were the case? Or what if I did that? And that is really what underlies what is so special about human creativity. Some credit also uh, has to go to the opposable thumbs and the larynx, but I think much less than... Uh, we traditionally think it's really about the, the structure of the human brain. I've always said if dolphins had thumbs, they could probably be doing some incredible things, too. Well, maybe, but you don't find dolphins doing theater plays for one another or inventing the <laughs> Internet or going to the moon. And, and the question is, why Why not? I mean, dolphin, no, no offense to dolphins. They're super smart animals, but they're not. no other species is doing what we do. And something that Tony and I have talked about a lot is, you know, when you fly over a, a forest and you look down at it, it looks the same as it did a million years ago. But when you fly over a city like Los Angeles, it, it looks like a motherboard has risen out of the earth. Um, and that's because of all of this incredible human innovation. We're, we're a species that's taken over every part of the planet and, and changed it to, to our desires. Is this brain that you've talked about, David, is it going to change as evolution evolves over the next 100, 200 years? Oh, yeah, and it's not because of evolution, actually, which operates on a much slower time scale, but it's instead because we're now at a point where we're figuring out the tricks of our biology, and we're figuring out how to feed new kinds of information into the brain um, and and have new sorts of uh, controls, new sorts of motor acts that we can do with the brain. So in other words, we're changing the inputs and outputs, and uh, we are very rapidly going to become something quite different than, uh, than our ancient ancestors. What determines the creativity and the change? I mean, look at the evolution of just the last 100 years, maybe even 50 years, how we've evolved from the desktop computer to now these little handhelds, which I think have revolutionized this planet. What, yeah. what, what creates that, that, that movement toward this creativity? Well, a big part of this has to do with the way that we are intensely social creatures. And so we all absorb each other's ideas and bounce ideas back and forth. And we all try to surprise and impress one another with our ideas. And so what happens is, first of all, we have many more brains running around the planet now than we did, let's say, 500 years ago. Um, you know, we have close to 8 billion brains running around the planet now. Um, and, and what happens is, with each new discovery, that becomes the, 
the fodder for the next discoveries. And as we run around the world and we absorb ideas and remix those ideas, you now have lots of brains doing that with lots of new discoveries. And it's happening at such a pace now that, um, you know, even the old style when I started graduate school where, you know, you sit down and you write a paper and you publish the paper and that ends up in a library somewhere, even that style of disseminating information is way too slow now because the discoveries are so rapid. Tony, tell me how important music has been to the creativity of uh, mankind. Well, one thing we talk about in the book is that we're surrounded by creativity all the time, uh, from our daily life, making jokes, recipes, um, to the illustrious things that we'll see in a, in a museum. But a lot of the creativity that surrounds us is covert. It's hidden. Uh, you can't access it. Um, there's a description of the iPhone that it's, it's basically all of its creativity is sealed inside of a box, and you, you need a special tool called a pentalobe to open it. Mm-hmm. And what's so uh, exciting and dramatic and, I would say, awesome about the arts is that the cre- creativity is overt. And uh, a great piece of music is like a, a lesson in uh, the creative principles that operate behind the scenes in every other discipline. And so in that sense... Music is just representative of how humans approach the world in general, and so is every art form. And, and David, have you found in your studies that the the brain's capacity is at its peak, or is there still room to grow in terms of creativity? Well, here's the thing. We all come to the table with the exact same software to absorb the world and remix it and spit out new versions of it, and that's is probably, you know, as, as good as it's going to get in terms of the, terms of the substrate we have. But um, what's interesting is that the other thing that the brain is trying to do all the time is to automatize things. So the way that you walk and talk and eat and so on, these are very complicated motor acts, but they're so automatic that you do them completely unconsciously. And so there's always this battle between doing things in an automated way versus doing things in a creative way. And so in order to be creative, what, what humans can do is, you know, figure out what are, the, what are the ways to seek novelty, what are the ways to proliferate lots of options when trying to come up with what to do next, what are the ways to challenge oneself, how do you set up an environment where failure is okay if it's coming in the context of trying lots of different things out and so on. So it's not that there's going to be any sort of change in the human brain that's coming down the line, but certainly there can be changes in human society that allow us, even as individuals, to um, you know, actually maximize this really special thing that our brains are able to do. So we're not at maximum uh, capacity of the brain yet? Um, yeah. In terms of the brain's capacity in general, we are probably at you know at max capacity, but it's not. Um, but it depends on what we're doing. So in terms of creativity, there are very few people who are actually at max capacity. Why? Because we all have to worry about our mortgages and our families and all the other things that we spend lots of our time on. And so there are ways to um, not change the uh, not change the fundamentals of the brain, but to change how we're, how we're allocating our time. 
And I'll jump in to say that we could also have more brains online working creatively. Uh, This is something that's really important to David and me with respect to education. Um, You know, the arts have been taken out of so many public schools, and in a sense we're marginalizing the creativity of a lot of kids whose imaginations are just as powerful and active as uh, kids in neighborhoods that do have the arts. And, you know, let's take advantage of having 8 billion brains on the planet. Uh, It's like having, you know, 8 billion supercomputers all working um, and, and leverage that. That's another way of supercharging, and you know, for the future. Well, Tony, are we suppressing this kind of advancement with the brain? Uh, I think we feel too often in, in early education we are, yeah. Um, you know, there's a, a great focus right now on standardized testing on questions which have a right answer in the back of the book. And that's really important and very, uh, you know, necessary for a grounding, for having skills, but it's missing a whole part of human capacity. And, uh, you know, we're, we're encouraging in the book talking about having kids constantly uh, invited to have questions for which there isn't an answer in the back of the book, or there's multiple answers. Um, there's a beautiful example. NASA has an Imagine Mars project where they go to public schools and they ask kids, to work on exactly the same problem that NASA engineers are working on, which is what's it going to be like to have a colony on Mars? And, you know, uh, uh, the best hope is to have something in 20 or 30 years, and the, the scientists are still working out the answers. And then the kids are right alongside them thinking about what it's like to take those risks and make those speculations about something which really hasn't been nailed down yet. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.